Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palanker. You know, here at Media Path, we think of ourselves as the Sherpa guides taking you to the top of the mountain of new content released every week on all forms of media. Then we bring in amazing guests to talk about their recent work. This time we've got two of the principals involved in a spectacular new documentary about the blues industry called Born in Chicago. It's the origin story of blues in America, the great uh, great migration of the Delta Blues players coming north to Chicago for employment in the first part of the 20th century. It's the electrification of blues on the streets of the South Side. It's blues finding a white, young audience in the 60s. The legend is that the Brits introduced American kids to their own music, the blues, through Clapton and the Yardbirds and Cream and Zeppelin. But that isn't completely true. Chicago was the Petri dish, where the masters like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Little Walter, Willie Dixon, Buddy Guy, Jimmy Rogers, all handed the mantle down to young, skilled white players like Paul Butterfield, Elvin Bishop, Mike Bloomfield, and one of our guests, iconic keyboardist Barry Goldberg. Barry, along with the film's director, Bob Sarles, who is not here today. Bob is ill. He had some um, mercury-infused sushi or something last night, and he's not feeling well today, but we'll speak on his behalf, right? And Jimmy Vivino is with us as well. I'm, I'm going to give everybody—this is going to be a master class in the blues in America. We'll bow to each of these guys and give them their proper introductions in a second, Wheezy. But I want to tell you, we have some announcements here for— uh, us, we, we love getting these kudos. Media Path listeners, first of all, we just want to let you know that we're, we're, we're taking a little time off during the month of July. We'll be dark next week for Independence Day, then back with a colossal episode. Jerry Mathers, a.k.a. The Beave, will be joining us on July 11th. After that, we're dark for the rest of the month and then back in action August 1st. In the meantime, if you just recently discovered us, there's a lot in our back catalog for you to enjoy. Go to MediaPathPodcast.com. We also want to take a moment to thank our listeners in the U.S. and all over the world. As recently, we have charted on Apple Podcasts and book categories in Ireland, Canada, Mexico, and the Philippines. And thank you for your support in the Good Pods app, where we've charted several times this month in the TV and the books category. As of today, we're number six in the top 100 TV chart. Let us know what media you're consuming this summer. Send us an email to mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. I'm very impressed with us. Right. And uh, it's exciting. So, Fritz, is, I've been watching some TV this week. I know. You um, always do. Yeah, I usually do. So I watched Shiny Happy People, colon, Duggar Family Secrets. Every good documentary needs a colon, you know, is what I've discovered. Yours has one. Um, uh, uh, Shiny Happy People, Duggar Family Se- Secrets is a limited docuseries exposing the truth beneath the wholesome surface of reality TV's favorite mega family, the Duggars. In essence, the Duggars are part of a decentralized Christian cult. The Institute for Basic Life Principles with satellite affiliate churches and homeschool families throughout the country, their goals are to infiltrate all segments of society, family, school, business, the judicial system, and politics. For example, Sarah Palin, Rick Perry, Madison Cawthorn, and Mike Huckabee are connected to the group's leader, Bill Gothard. In pursuit of their goals, family units are tightly controlled, which includes the strict suppression of our human instincts, exploration, curiosity, innovation, creativity, and sexuality. They advocate a sequential umbrella system of authority, beginning with God, then the father of the family, then the mother, and then the children, like stacking dolls, ensuring the ultimate protection from Satan. Any deviance 
results in corporal punishment. The kids are beaten into submission, in essence. As we know, and as we've seen with the Duggars, attempting to contain our natural human instincts and development can result in dangerously harmful behaviors. Oldest Duggar son, Josh, had already been molesting his sisters when the show began filming. This was kept under wraps. He is currently in prison for possession of child pornography. The series only briefly touches upon the sex quiverful Christian nationalist movement, which demands the complete submission of wives and daughters to their fathers and husbands, forbidding birth control so that Christian parents can produce more culture war soldiers. These teachings are by design infiltrating every layer of society. The Green family, the evangelical owners of the Hobby Lobby chain of stores, donate money to Gothard's organization. So in addition to these folks imposing their warped and dangerous views on their own families, they are attempting to dominate the world. Be careful who you vote for. Shiny, happy people. Duggar Family Secrets is on Prime. Yeah, I saw this show. It's fascinatingly creepy. I love tainted religious figures it's just fun i mean it's creepy but it's 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 it just shows that it's so sad when people are bamboozled into these thought processes well i think this has gone on throughout human history it's a means of controlling communities but we just know more about it and yet still people people within these cults do not see a way out Mm -hmm. it's everything and everyone they know and they've been taught that anyone on the outside is dangerous, is connected to Satan, and uh, not only do they not know how to get out, they they are afraid of people on the outside. All right, well, that was a good one. I want to look at a documentary this week called Fair Play. I, I'm not big into self-help content, as you know. Yeah, you don't need any. No. Well, mm-hmm. some of us are too old and too set in our ways to change our behavior, sure. even with great advice. But my daughter who just graduated with a degree in psychology, forced me to watch this thing. So I did, because when she gets a therapist license, I want the friends and family discount. It's based on a New York Times best-selling book by Eve Rodsky, and it's called Fair Play. It's for women juggling the marriage and career combo. Women are usually the caregivers in the home and the handlers of all things domestic. Eve Rodsky is a Harvard-educated lawyer who worked on Wall Street. She had a prestigious job. She got good money, neither of which brought her happiness. Her home life was like the Israelis and the Palestinians. She did some research and found that problems in the home were actually systemic problems affecting millions of people. So she thought she would see if she could do something about it. She followed three other families around as test cases. The outcome was very interesting. When caregiving and domestic responsibilities are shared between partners, man, man, woman, woman, man, woman, it ends up benefiting the men, the families, and here's the key, it benefits the economy. And she has charts and graphs and pie charts and everything to prove it. In other words, men, when you take out the trash without being asked, you might see a bump in the stock market. It was very interesting. And I watch it with my daughter, and I love it because she's at an age where she's not buying all the dogma that we grew up with. It's a trickle-up theory. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, let's get to our guests. They are representing a great new documentary about the evolution of blues in America entitled Born in Chicago. Now, I'm going to give Bob his props because if we don't, 
we'll all hear about it later. And this will be the think of this as a eulogy that we're going to do. Oh gonna, my <laughs> God, Fritz! No. Bob's done some excellent. He's Bob Sorrells. He's the director of this project. He's done some excellent explorations of music like Sweet Blues, the story of Mike Bloomfield, the historic blues guitarist that we'll talk about in this doc as well. He, he is a huge presence in uh, Born in Chicago, as you will see. He did Feed Your Head about the psychedelic era. He did Bang, the Burt Burns story. Oh, we, we've great. talked about We Bert. had him on for that. Yeah. 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 That, that's where we had met him. And mm-hmm. Burt was this undersung but brilliant songwriter and producer who produced some of the biggest hits in the history of rock and roll, Twist and Shout, Peace of My Heart, Under the Boardwalk, Hang on Sloopy, Somebody to Love. Another film he did was Flying Jefferson Airplane and the Many Lives of Ozzy Osbourne. He's an Emmy-nominated film and TV editor. He produced Legs, the video for ZZ Top, which may have been their breakout MTV video. He's a great guy, and we're sorry you're not feeling well. Uh, Bob, we'll get to you next time. Also with us today, to my immediate right, the legendary blues keyboardist Barry Goldberg, who's featured in this film as well. Barry sat in, this, is, this is, blows my mind. Barry sat in with Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Otis Rush, when he was a teenager. That's just crazy. He played with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. He played with Dylan at his notorious Newport Folk Festival performance when Dylan went electric and everybody's head exploded. But the bad reaction, as we will learn from Barry, wasn't exactly the truth. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. The the whole reaction wasn't negative. Barry's written and produced songs that have been recorded by Rod Stewart, Gladys Knight, Joe Cocker, and others. He formed the Goldberg Miller Band with Steve Miller, the the, the Barry Goldberg Blues Band, and with Mike Bloomfield, he recorded the seminal Two Jews Blues, which I just love. I just so buy that for the album cover. That's fantastic. He, along with Mike Bloomfield, formed the Electric Flag, which had the benefit of two of what I think are the greatest voices in rock and blues, uh, Nick Gravenides and the drummer Buddy Miles, which are amazing band. Also, here's Jimmy Vivino. Jimmy is a blues artist with a job. That's right. (laughs) I'm grateful. No, I get it. Jimmy's a guitarist, music director, and band leader, and a composer for Born in Chicago. He was born and raised in Chicago himself. He only spent 20... No, 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 no. The other Chicago, Patterson, New Jersey. Oh, that's that's (laughs) me. and Lou Costello. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, no, I... But your musical passion... I wish I was born in Chicago. Well, he only spent 26 years as Conan O'Brien's band leader. Holy cow. Well, we got blues guys on that way through the yeah. back door. No, oh, exactly. Yeah. You can, you know, uh, yeah. He's yeah. worked with an array of blues artists, Hubert Sumlin, who was a guitarist for Muddy and for Wolf, Bob Weir, The Grateful Dead, Keith Richards, Elvis Costello, and uh, Shamika Copeland, who I listen to every morning on B.B. King's Blues oh, Villain Channel great. 74. She's a sweetheart. Well, I knew her since she was just a tight. And I guess her dad was a huge. Well, Johnny used to bring her up on stage yeah. when she was like 12. Yeah, yeah she's 13. wonderful. And she, I think she just got an award at the Blues Awards uh, recently, too. And she's awesome. And you work with Laura Nero, Levon Helm, John Sebastian, John Lewis Hooker, who's a current blues star. So many, yeah. many. But we have too much credibility in this room. We're going to have to ask one of you to leave. Anyway. <laughs> All right. I, I just want to uh, I, I just want to state my uh, my uh, passion for blues uh, my introduction to it was in 1969. I was in the Navy, and I bought a the first Paul Butterfield album at the PX for $2.50. And it was the Born in Chicago one, and I was off to the races. And then I was sort of mildly interested in it, but I, I started doing a deep dive on the 
the uh, grand masters of blues when Howlin' Wolf's London Sessions came out. And, you know, they had Clapton and all the Stones people. And then I started to learn about chess records and all the Chicago stuff. And I've been a huge fan ever since. So all that to say, what an honor to see you guys. And what a pleasure watching this movie. It's a great piece of work. Thank you, Fitz. Really a great piece of work. So let's go back to what I, I, I mentioned earlier in your introduction. The common myth is that the Brits introduced American kids to the blues. But equally important was the Chicago blues scene with Butterfield, Steve Miller, Harvey Mandel from Detroit shot in there, all white kids connecting with the University of Chicago students and eventually moving the blues from the south and west side to the north side of Chicago, Big John's Club, we'll talk about that, and and higher class clubs of white people. So I think the Chicago guys white and African-American, were as responsible for introducing American white kids to blues as the Brits were, putting that myth to shame. <laughs> well, we were fortunate to be from Chicago, you know, and it happened in our own, in our own city, right, just a few miles from where we, all, where we all grew up. And for me, I, I discovered the blues listening to my little radio at night, my transistor, and at the end of the dial, I found it by accident, was this amazing guy named Jam with Sam, that was the name of his show, Sam Evans on WGES. And he played, this theme song was Little Walter's Blue Lights. And I, I, of course, was into rock and roll, Little Richard and Chuck Berry and Jerry Lewis and Buddy Holly and all those people, but when I heard this, Something exploded in my mind and my soul, and I, I I was like under a spell because it was so haunting. The reverbs on on the harmonica that uh, Ron Mallow was the engineer at Chess Records that he used, and just the haunting and mysterious and mystical sound of it. I said, "Oh my God, what is this?" You know, I. And is it where is it coming from? And it's coming from just a few miles away. So I was really turned on to something special. And it could only have happened in Chicago at that particular time. And unbeknownst to me, there were people all around the south side and west side like playing this music, like Money Waters, Howling Wolf, Otis Rush. Uh, my, my hero, Otis Spann, keyboard piano guy that was the best and uh, I had to find out and there were a few guys like myself and we all sort of knew each other if we hung out at the Jazz Mart record store downtown Bob Chicago Kester. Bob Kester Bob, yeah, Bob, Kester. Bob Kester was the owner and actually Charlie Musselwhite came into Chicago from Memphis Tennessee and he lived in the basement of Bob's <laughs> record store story. yeah man and is so, that the one where Mike Bloomfield was a clerk? Oh no, he, he was, was a clerk in a record store too, right? Well, then a lot of records went out the back door. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, he was he was a he was a unique character, let's say, right? I mean, he was a real, my favorite, a real, a real character yeah. that, that really upset things in a in a, in a wonderful way. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. good trouble. Yeah, and I, I think that I think the the big difference, Barry, if if I may, as an, uh, a kid who you know I I only represent the ears of 
kids that were 10 years younger than you and what we heard and what we figured. And that was that, yes, credits due to the Rolling Stones and, and at that time the Yardbirds and Fleetwood Mac and all the bands that studied those records like religion and learned to copy them perfectly. And a lot of a lot of times, as well as you could be expected from a bunch of kids from England, but they really were dedicated to it. These guys, Barry and Michael, and, and they were on stage with those guys. Mm -hmm. They were le living with those guys, learning firsthand. The soul was, you know, it was just transmigrated from, mm -hmm. from those players into you. I know from being on stage years later with Muddy and Hubert and, and uh, all of these other cats that had lived, Jimmy Rogers, the guys who survived, um, that there's nothing like it. I mean, you can play... You can dress up and play army, or you can actually be in the army. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, it's such a great point, and, and a point that you, I don't know who made it in the movie. You might have made it, but uh, getting to play with these guys, it wasn't like they were protecting their music. And what are these little white kids doing? They were very willing to share information and licks and skills. If you were good, if you were good, <laughs> and, and, and as Barry said in the movie, you didn't have to be perfect, but they appreciated your sincerity and learning their art form and the passion that we had. Yeah, and they recognized it, and they gave us their love, and we gave it back, and eventually. Myself, Michael Bloomfield, and Paul Butterfield, and we would actually go down to these clubs and strike up relationships with the Muddy Waters, with the Howling Wolf. And I remember Michael, we're walking into the club, uh, it was uh, Silvio's on the west side of Chicago, in a very, very, very real Chicago blues crowd. So it was sort of like that scene in, in Adventures in Babysitting where everybody plays the blues, you know. So we walk in, Michael said, just follow me. Sat in the front row. People were not shocked, but curious. You know, n nothing like this had ever happened, the, invading their home territory. And Wolf had met Michael before. He had done this before, and he said, we got some little white boys in the house, and a little hush came over the crowd. You know, you could hear a pin drop. So we marched up there like warriors. You know, we were there to, to on a mission. And we first song we played, and Hubert Sumlin was on guitar, was Killing Floor. And da 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 and we fell right in. I was on the piano, and Michael was on the guitar with Wolf. When Wolf started smiling, and that was a thing in itself, like the, the six foot six, 300 pound guy with a, with a beautiful, beautiful smile, you know, wonderful smile. And he was entertained by it. He thought it was the, the he recognized our passion for the music and our respect, which was really most important. So we did that. We did that with Muddy and uh, we did it with Otis Rush. We did it with Elmore James. Uh, it was like, I, I can't explain it. It was like the greatest new thing, old thing that we ever could experience. And we finally took a while, but after a year or two, we got it right. And we really learned how to play one-on-one -on -one, right next to the Muddy Waters, right next to Howling Wolf, right next to the, the great masters of the blues. 
So did we, you? Um, did, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Jimmy. Did you? Did you? Did Henry Gray get up and give you his piano, piano bench? Well, it must have been Henry, right? I mean, you have to play with your back to the audience at Silvio's, right? The piano mm-hmm. faced the wall, or something weird like that. Henry Gray was phenomenal keyboard yeah. player. He was the best at the playing through. We we call it. He was. He's the one that I I prefer, you know prefer. You learned that his, top st- his end style, from him. that top end from him. That top end was Henry Gray, and the left yeah. hand from Johnny Johnson. Yes, and Johnny, of course, I spent many years with. Uh, and I feel like until I worked with Johnny, I was not a complete musician because he could just look over at you and <laughs> you, you know, just, you know, something wasn't right. I know that. I know, I know that <laughs> look. That look, you know? Yeah. Oh, really? It's that I, old really? I, I, saw, I saw that look with Buddy when, yeah. when Otis Spann wanted to take a break and he saw me coming in. <laughs> it wasn't because my chops were so good. He just wanted to take a break. Yeah. And here's this kid coming in. Now he can go you know, around and, and relax. Yeah, yeah, and I can go so, get a drink, yeah. And meanwhile, Muddy wasn't very happy about the change of the sound of the band until like four months later, you know, when I actually fell into the song and I got it right. And my, the piano was below the stage and the st- Muddy was right up above me on the stage and he looked down and he smiled. Yeah, oh. my boy. And that was next to my my wife and my marriage and my son, oh. my, my son's bar mitzvah. Man. That was the greatest thrill I've ever oh. had in music. Better than Dylan, better than anyone, better wow. than Jimi Hendrix, you know. That's enormous. Um, I just wanted to ask you guys, uh, you know, just about what, you know, what it is that you were able to experience in the time period that was making it possible and, you know, we, we see the digital age as a great sharing, awakening, and community building opportunity, and it is, of course, but from the moment music could be recorded and broadcast, its gravitational pull has altered our, our trajectory. So talk about the history of this music and how it was in that time period that you were suddenly able to hear music from a neighborhood that was not your own and what that did to you. It was a magical experience because the magic was happening on the south side and west side. And people were not immune to it, you know, but they just figured it was it was another 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 step, another space, another but it wasn't. It was something incredible, incredibly different and super and just really it couldn't happen anywhere else on that particular. It was that period was touched like Brigadoon or something, you know. And, and musicians had sort of a, if you, I, we can't we can't skirt over this. African American musicians were very welcoming to white kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you would never, you really in jazz, you could see that, you know, you could see that in music in general. Yeah, it was happening in, mu- in Harlem in the forties. No, but music in general has always been an acceptance of you. First by your talent, uh, then how you carried yourself in public, and then it got private where we hung out, where we had meals, we were on the road, you know, we were sharing hotels, we were, you know, we were living together in, in some, you more than I, some really tenuous times to be driving around in cars, you know, and, and 
you were in an integrated band or two at the yeah, time. Yeah, Butterfield was, was one of the first integrated bands. We give him that. We have to give him that, too, because it, there was such a struggle to get Paul Butterfield into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, and and it and it, it was an f- uphill battle for years and years and years. Even based on that alone, one of the first integrated bands that— you know, that even Bob Dylan perked up and wanted all those guys and to play with And when with you him. went on the road, did you have to stay in places where uh, blacks weren't accepted in hotels? Did you have to go to some of the, like the blue book places in the South to stay? When we were on the road, I had to sleep on, in a big room with cots, not even a room. Yeah. We all had cots, and, and the one sleeping next to me in the cot was a guy named Sun House. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yep. And I yep. didn't I didn't know it then, but I know it now. Like what a how heavy that was. Yeah. Wow. That was. But the, they didn't. They stopped going to the south after they yeah. saw the way they were. They just weren't weren't going to put up with it. You, you guys have uh, hinted at something that we've talked about on the show before, which is appropriation. And you you said that the black musicians, and once you played in the black clubs, they were very accepting of you. There is a school of thought, and I happen to not be in the school of thought. It makes me mad when I hear people say that, that uh, by white musicians playing this black art form, they're appropriating their art. And you said it because what turned you on to it was turning down that dial and hearing that music, and you can't even describe the, the visceral reaction you had to it. And... and and I, I think it just drives me nuts. And I think Butterfield said it in the documentary. Uh, all, all music is for all people. There's no color barrier to, to the music. And when I hear people say there's appropriation, I say, but wait a minute. Are people like a, a Stevie Ray Vaughan and Bonnie Raitt, are they appropriating? Just, no. That's just forcing a wedge between race Absolutely. relations. It's that about makes sharing it, credit. You know, nobody says Leontine Price should not be singing opera. Oh, there you right. go. You know, and yeah, nobody says that point. Wynton Marsalis, who is a brilliant brilliant jazz musician can also play the humble trumpet concerto better than anybody in the world is that appropriation no no it's it's not it's music and and people that say those things a are not musicians b have no right to say that because it's just it just makes it just sets us backwards as far as race relation goes you know and what that black shouldn't cook italian food how far does it go you know so it, it just really it's it polarizing yeah. more than anything i, I think if you if you if you say hey this is mine that could be appropriation but if you say hey i was inspired by and if you yes. give credit down exactly. the line oh, we, we always have done that yeah of know. course and you got uh, those guys booked into the rooms where you were playing so it was a complete full circle Appreciation. Well, then some people might say, "Oh, we don't need your help." You know what I mean? Yeah. But no, that's not Everyone, true. They didn't. They didn't live in in the times. Most of the people saying these things are younger people. Yes. That did not live yeah. in the times. Muddy and BB yeah. King always said, "Thank God yeah. for those." I mean, kids. Barry can tell you more about that than yeah. anybody sitting here. So. But I just I, wanted you know. to finish this thought, and I'm, I, I I agree a thousand percent with everything you're saying. I interviewed uh, Little Richard when I was at Channel Four, and. And he, everybody blames uh, Pat Boone for appropriating. You know, he anglicized it. He made it a little, he made a, a jelly donut out of really soulful music. But 
Little Richard said, are you kidding me? Pat Boone made me so much money. I am in his debt. And, and we had Pat on, and Pat said, he told me that, too. He said, these guys that introduced our music to a broader audience are to be thanked and not poo-pooed because they're appropriating African-American Some music. of the first pizza people ate was frozen pizza. And then they find out what real pizza is, okay? Let me go they to never your go source. Back. They never go back. <laughs> they don't. That, well, okay, so, you know, at least he's uh, somebody says, oh, he's singing, uh, you know, uh, Tutti Frutti. And he's and he's snapping on, you know, one and three. three. I can't even sing it and do that. (laughs) But some kids and this is the the wonderful thing about young people are going to say, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. Where did that come from? You know, you but on the other hand, the, the white kids blended the rock and roll and the blues. You know, they blended it. They took it as they took it from here, from here, from here, from here, and made what's called rock and roll now. But we know rock and roll is what Barry. It's Little Richard, right? It's, Little Richard, it's Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry, and Jerry Lee. I mean, basically, you know, and pianos, you know, all and, those pianos. And, and the blues was at the roots of all that music. Yes, yes, and those guys were not, you know, Chuck. And I've worked with Chuck many times. A couple of times were good. Uh, <laughs> You know, but you every day you wake up and you 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 forgive Chuck Berry when you work with him because because of his what he did. I mean, there's no Bob Dylan without Chuck Berry. He's the first street poet, you know, for that generation. And then Dylan picked up on it. You know, the list songs, too much monkey business is really subterranean. Homesick blues reworked. It's it's what happens is you realize that everybody was trying to be a piano. Chuck's trying to play that left hand, that boogie-woogie hand, and that's the blues. It's all the rhythm. Yeah, right. All about rhythm. All about the rhythm. And and those guys weren't even taken seriously by Muddy and Wolf, you know, Chuck and Bo. It was a different world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and they were—Bo Diddley was—how can somebody—he was such a great performer and, and, and another funny— funny guy that was deep and and if you can have one riff like Elmore James or Bo Diddley and make a career out of it that's pretty fascinating to me it sounds good every time every time too and and, and Jimmy Reed right yeah. I want to hear you guys talk about Chess Records and everybody you mentioned at one time recorded there do you remember the studio oh well, they they had a, a chamber there yeah that was worth a million dollars and as small as it was you don't have to be big. Look at Sun Records. Look at Chess. Yeah. You know, small. Like a drain pipe but or something. Even I Motown remember. was a tiny it, studio. It, mm-hmm. Well, it was. It looked like. Have you ever been on a covered bridge, like in the <laughs> Connecticut or yes. somewhere? You know, on bridges of Madison County, whatever. <laughs> okay. It looks like a covered bridge when you walk into it. It's a long room oh. with a, with a cathedral ceiling. Okay. Right? It's pointed, and it's a long room, and the control room's all the way at one end, and it's cement. It's concrete. So it's naturally has this reverb anyway. And I asked um, Hubert, when you guys recorded there, like, where did you set up? He said, well, I get there first and put my amp right by the stairs so I could be the first one out. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows what the truth is? Johnny Johnson told me that Chuck had his amp up on a, his little Fender amp up on a chair behind him. And every time he took the solo, he just stepped away from the microphone and you know, he mixed himself. Wow. He walked away, you know, and, and and the engineers had those kind of tricks, too. Ron Mello. Yeah, Ron, yeah, right. He, he's he's unheralded, actually. Unheralded. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the Leonard and Phil get all the credit. One was the accountant, one was the, 
just the you know he just pushed those guys. If you hear if you hear Leonard Chess, you know say come on take another one. Take, we always thought those guys went in and boom right. There's like 50 takes on those things. Is the truth wow. about Leonard and Phil the story that was told in Cadillac Records? There's nothing true in that movie. Is that, is, is that true? <laughs> no, no, there is. No, some but, I, stuff. but but they, but the idea I, that like Muddy Muddy the guys never got the residuals they were or the sales receipts for a song. Well, that went record. for every studio and every town and every record company owner, but the but the bull about the the, the offensive at a James uh, portrayal and bull that there was a, an affair and, and all of that kind of stuff was crap. You know, they took a lot of stories and then Hollywoodized yeah. those stories. I just wondered if it was true, the whole concept of Cadillac Records, where they didn't give them what they were worth. They didn't give them the receipts from the from Well, the Bo sale. Diddley always claimed that, right? He got a Cadillac in $10,000. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there I don't know if, they, if the scene was in the movie where I guess it was... Sonny Boy too, drove through the flake glass window in front in his car to get his money. He wanted another advance, and he drove right through the window to demand his money. But those guys took a lot of advances, you know, and uh, and um, everyone was doing it then. Uh, you know, Norman Petty took every half of everything Buddy Holly did, without writing a single note of music or word, and uh, and Irving Mills owned half of what. Duke Ellington wrote and published. Uh, this was not an uncommon practice anywhere. And I meant to, to mention Buddy to say that white guys, too, got screwed. You know, uh, Scotty Moore will tell you that he got 50 bucks a week, you know, when Elvis had number one records. So it wasn't uncommon that musicians were getting screwed everywhere. And that's and, why Chuck insisted on being paid cash before the I gig. don't blame him, though. Yeah, right. I don't blame him. You in, know? A, in a paper bag. <laughs> right. And he put, put it in, in his boot. <laughs> in his boot. He was, you know, but he was something that I learned a lot from him, uh, you know, in his wisdom and also, you know, tried. I used to try to talk him out of the, you know, out of his anger sometimes, and I could get moments of that. But I knew it wasn't something that he wanted to do. He he was kind of reveling in this behavior at the time, Chuck. You know, it was a he control. Was, he was set up. Yeah. You know, we know the Man Act and all that. So I think he was set up anyway. I I would wanna I would wanna believe that that uh, you know the bitterness came from that one incident where he got arrested and put in jail, and then he came out, and even Johnny Johnson said he was never the same. You know, mm. he was never, never the same. So but it, it could like, have been building because, I mean, we don't know what it's like to walk around in black skin. I think no, that... and be one of the handsomest man's, it, man in the universe. For sure, for sure, yeah. <laughs> Brown-eyed handsome man, you know. Uh, you know, at a time where audiences were in the South were segregated, you know, blacks up in the balcony, whites downstairs, and... and um, we don't, we, no, we can't know. And I even say to my friends, I can never say to you, my African-American friends, I can never say to you, I know how you feel. I can't never. In fact, you can't say that to anybody. But people like to say that. Oh, man, I know how you feel. No, you don't. You can't possibly. Uh, I know how the music feels. That's, you know, that's the important thing, I mm -hmm. think, uh, that we, that's all we cared about. Yeah. You know, now, let let me talk for a second about how, you know, we opened the show talking about how these guys like the Stones and uh, Clapton and Burden and everybody get credit for appreciating uh, American blues. When they came over, did they hang out with you guys or did they just want to go right to the source? 
They went right to the source. So you guys never became friends. Well, we we did become friends. You know, not not friends, but but musical acquaintances. Musical acquaintances. They they weren't that warm. Rivals. Weren't... <laughs> Let's say the truth. The truth. Hey, we, we're going to beat it, it those was, guys. It wasn't a hug and a soul brother kind of thing. You know, it was a, always at a distance. It was always. But what would happen if you saw? Say it was Cream at that time, probably when they came over and played, and you guys watched them play. What was your What was yours? We're going to kick their ass. Well, you know, you know, I, <laughs> what did they do to Crossroads? That that night, Michael wasn't at his best, right? I don't know whether he he, he was intimidated by Clapton or what was it, but when if he would have been at his best, we had Michael, we had Buddy, yeah. And we had Nick, two great singers, a, ho a, ho and, a horn yeah. section, yeah. you know, and, and there was no one, you know, that could really, but they were a little better than us that night. And before the gig started, I saw Michael talking to Eric Clapton in the audience, you know, and uh, Michael said, you know, I, they were both smiling, you know, and I had heard that Clapton wasn't such a nice guy, you know, he was... Uh, a little rude, a little belligerent. So Michael said, to, "Come over here, come over here, Barry. I want you to meet a friend of mine." And uh, Eric Clapton. This is Barry Goldberg. Oh, hello, man. How are you? And a big hug, you know. And he almost kissed me. I mean, it was like so warm and wonderful. And we, we you know, we hugged and everything. And I walked away. And I said to Michael. He's not really such a bad guy. He's really a good. Well, I told him you had a, a condition, and you only had like six months to live. <laughs> That's Michael. <laughs> Michael's an interesting dude. He, oh you know, he man! Can, first of all, he's one of the most iconic players, and oh. we'll talk about Electric Flag, and we'll talk about the Blues Project, and all that stuff. But he was born in Chicago to like wealthy means. The house this guy grew up in was unbelievable. So he's a smart young Jewish kid who was born and raised in Chicago in in comfortable circumstances, and you would never peg anybody from those circumstances to be the seminal blues player that he was. It just doesn't, you know, doesn't make sense. He was, a, a, you know, like, like a lot of us, like not a tortured soul, but a bothered soul, mm -hmm. you know, and there was a void that was missing inside of him, and that's what the blues filled. You know, rock and roll... You know, did it to a certain extent, but it was nothing like what happened when you when you would hear that reverb and howling wolf howling, and the mystical elements of the blues. It took away that that void, and it filled what we needed inside. And they became like our relatives, the blues guys. You know, like our extended family. We'd babysit for their kids. We'd do anything we wow. can. And later on, when we went to San Francisco, the white kids, you know, and it was an integrated band. All, all the bands were integrated. It wasn't because we wanted to be integrated. It was because of the best musicians. They were the best. We never saw things in color. We only felt them. You know, we only felt how it, how it felt like. And these were the right, this is the right drummer, this is the right bass player. Then... Michael, who was very friendly with Bill Graham, who was the top promoter on the West Coast, said, if you like us, if you like the Butterfield Band, man, you should hear B.B. King. You should hear Muddy Waters. You should book these people into the Fillmore and the West Coast. That was a really Coast. touching moment in your film 
when B.B. admits he thought he was going to die. It was an all-white young audience. And when they came out there, and he said the chairman of the board and everybody stood up and gave him this thunderous round of applause. It was like a religious experience for him. He knew he had crossed over into a new audience at that point. And that was a beautiful thing that did, that did happen intentionally. You know, we wanted to do, we wanted to share the love for everyone now. We wanted everyone to get turned on to this experience. And happened at Monterey Pop, too. It wasn't exactly the blues, but it was blues related with Otis Redding. You know, Otis Redding said, how am I going to compete with, with Janis Joplin or someone on Jefferson Airplane? But the people, all the, the hippies, you know, 100,000, you know, just went absolutely berserk at the end of Try a Little Tenderness. And you can't you can't tell me that the, the, those people didn't feel what was going on. He was the man. So I want to talk about the Monterey Pop Festival or, or uh, Newport uh, Folk Festival because that was a great experience. And you were the first person to dispel the myth about everybody reacting negatively to Dylan going electric. So you went and played with Dylan during that set at the invitation of Mike Bloomfield, right? Dylan was a fan of Bloomfield's and he invited Bloomfield to play in that concert, correct? Right. And so uh, you were on stage when that whole thing happened and you had an interesting comment in the movie that it, 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 everybody talked about him being rejected because of the electric, but you said no. There were people that vibed on that thing that really thought it was really cool. Am I right about that? Well, Al Cooper agrees with me on that. You know. And that's amazing. <laughs> two of my best friends in the world, uh -huh. right? Barry Goldberg and Al Cooper, two two of the my real heroes. They they don't talk to each other mostly because my friend Al is like misinformed about a lot of stuff. And one of the things, and this was beautiful when we discovered this, Barry. All of a sudden, for years there weren't pictures, but all of a sudden there's a picture of Barry with a headband on playing the B3, and who's on bass? Al Cooper, who claimed he played organ for years at Newport on Like a Rolling Stone, but it's Barry. Al is playing the bass because Dylan came and he threw the, he grabbed people from Butterfield's band. He, Michael said, you know, get, get, let Barry play. And Al said, well, what am I gonna do? And Jerome, I think, for the most part, that was out of his wheelhouse. He couldn't get to change. Yeah, he was a one four five. If anybody musicians know what I mean by that, he was a one chord wolf kind of thing, or great, one four great five. Blue, great blues, great player. blues bass player. But the idea of one two three four five, you know, the, the chords of like a Rolling Stone wasn't in his vocabulary. He gave the bass to Al. Could have been Stravinsky. To Could have him. been. It might as well have been. Yeah, that. But then Barry's playing <laughs> playing organ. It's playing some of Al's parts, knowing, knowing, yeah. you knowing the parts. That line, that line, line, you know. And to Al's credit, it was a great line. But years later, when I showed Al that picture, oh, yeah, I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and I love you, Al. But uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's true that that, and that also, Al will agree with Barry, that people weren't were, were booing because it was too short. Okay. They're booing because you did like three or four numbers, right? Maggie's Farm, uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Subterranean maybe. Uh, they, they were like four four numbers. Like a Rolling Stone. Like a Rolling Stone, yeah. And and there was like there was one more, I don't know what it was, but I think it was only four songs. So people wanted more, I think. Uh, you know, it was it was. It's funny because you got to say that Dylan 
dragged a whole nother audience into the blues. He had guts. And one of the documentaries about him, it's recent. I don't know if it's No Direction Home or the one where he's playing a lot of gigs in England. And, you know, they got Albert and all those people there. The, the, the English audiences rejected him more than the Newport uh, uh, Yelling Judas. Yeah, I mean, oh my, that's a little deep. So they, they he, he was, but he had the guts to power through it, knew where he was going. Well, don't forget, in 1958, Muddy Waters went to England the first time he took Span with him. The two of them went over there, and Muddy had his Telecaster and his amp, you know, and he turned it up and he was playing loud. The English audience hated him. They had bagged him. He should be playing acoustic like Robert Johnson. He shouldn't be doing this. So Muddy was really upset. They went back home. They had Chris Barber's, Chris Barber's trad jazz, really a Dixieland band backing them up, right? And wrong, just all, everything was wrong. So Muddy, in 63, they go back, and Muddy just brings an acoustic guitar. And they're booing him because they want him to be playing the records they're hearing (laughs) now. The audience is fickle, they change, you know, they always have been. I mean, uh, I think, Bizet had to go out the basement window of the opera house when Carmen first aired, the first time they did opera Carmen, because the audience was so appalled at its message of a prostitute being the heroine, you know, that they, that he had to escape with his life. So let's never give the audience that much credit. It sounds like everyone's a critic is a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Well, now everyone's a critic, though, and has a format. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> back, back then, they would, boo! That was, like, I just posted. You know. Yeah, well, because you're not doing what I want you to do. Right. Every time you do something controversial, you're going to get critics. You're going to get people... Or something a little different. A little different. People yeah. cannot adjust to that. They you, cannot... Uh, they can't. But people they're the first people, to say, I was there when it happened. Sure. They don't like change <laughs> until they get used to change, and then they want to claim it, that, that it was my idea. Yeah. Well, so Bob human is, nature, though, sure. isn't it, kind of? You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. He's the king of controversy, Bob. Yeah. And he loves to throw things off like a little. And most of the time he creates something new and different. And what he did, as far as I was concerned that, that night, is he created folk rock. Wow, with, in one with the night. two keyboards, you know. Yeah. And when Al wasn't playing bass. Yeah, piano, yeah. Yeah. And so it was like the like the band pretty much, which was really a gospel setup. Exactly. Organ and piano. Exactly. And that and that became his thing with exactly. Paul Griffin and Al on some stuff and then exactly. down the road with Garth and Richard Manuel, yeah. you know. So the gospel part it of started it started there. Was part of it, you know, and, and less heavy guitars. You know, it was a new, th- it was a new old thing again, recycling the church gospel setup behind him. You know, great. And, but then and, again, and you I get think into, consciously. Like you get into like, well, you know, is that, is that that uh, appropriation or is that just innovation with it, with inspiration and all of mm-hmm. the Asians that are good? I think it's hard that people, when people, when people confuse inspiration with appropriation, and I don't even think they could spell either one of them. <laughs> so... You know, it, it, let's call it let's call it dedication. Yeah, is what it is. I yeah. can't spell that either. No, <laughs> yeah, but you can do you it. Know, <laughs> but like you know, New Orleans is a, is is a high, is what hybrid. Like, let's just look. All these cultures, sure, they, can, they make jambalaya, which is when they cook, they put everything in, and music. It should be the mm-hmm. same rules apply. Like, if you like it, incorporate some of it with like. Tones of this and hints of that, and it smells wonderful and it sounds great. Well, it's got to work together. Sure. And it and it does. And that's called a recipe. 
Exactly. So the 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 I'm going to talk about two other white guys that made well. Uh, Elvin Bishop, who was a student at University of Chicago and played with the Butterfield Band, and then Steve Miller came in and played guitar with the Butterfield Band. Those are the two guys I could think of that were able to sort of break out and have pop hits later. And uh, were they perceived as traitors? Because when you look at Steve Miller's songs, like Your Cash Ain't Nothing But Trash, that's a remake of an old R&B song. That's blues. And uh, The Joker, that's a blues song. So it's not really abandoning blues. It's just kind of rockifying it a little bit. No, not at all. And they did what they did. Uh, I fooled around and fell in love. Grave, vo- grave vocal. Mm-hmm. And a soulful song. And they, they didn't trade their soul for anything. They, they brought it to the rock and roll f- format. There's rock blues, you know, there's, there's a whole thing. But it's definitely cemented in, in the blues, to all those songs, because that's where their roots were. Those guys are from Oklahoma and Texas, okay? That's right. That's where it's in the water, too, and in the blood. Mm-hmm. That's another place. You know, there's really, uh, there's, there's pockets... Where, and anyone could argue that there was blues in their town, too, and that's true. But, but you know, where Steve was from, his father was T-Bone Walker's dentist, okay? <laughs> wow. So, and, and Steve sent me a bunch of things that he said, look, T-Bone was at the house. Can you identify these songs? He played a party. <laughs> There's like 40 songs on there, and, I was, and, and it was all a lot of jazz standards Steve, T-Bone was playing at the party. There was a piano player, T-Bone, and maybe... Somebody playing drums and with brushes in the back, and so he learned firsthand, you know, from T-Bone. Steve is an amazing shuffle his tone. Oh, guitar player oh. When, when he does tour down and songs like that. Oh yeah, and he sings like Steve Miller, which yeah. you, to his credit, it's smooth. You know, he's like the Dean Martin of the blues. <laughs> Talk and about he, the Goldberg Miller band. A yeah. Bit. Uh, our first gig, actually, when I was back, I came back from Newport, and I had the Dylan High. You know, when you play with someone uh, of that magnitude, that magic, it, it it's got to rub off on you. Like when I played with Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. and when it, his name was Jimmy James at the time, and they had a band called the Blue Flames. He would come in every night, and a little, a little rubs off on you. Anyway. I came, New York was too big for me, too crazy. I came back to Chicago and I was walking down a street at Old Town, which was like the Greenwich Village of Chicago. And in a storefront, there was this guy, down and down and down, and, and the notes were, this is Tebow Walker, man. This is like the, the, the mid-range, that mid-range guitar tone, you know. And, and I knew that Butterfield was leaving to go to the East Coast for this legendary club, Big John's, which is the blues club on the north side, which later Muddy and Wolf and all the blues guys came to play. They crossed the line, like we crossed the line. And it was an imaginary line, but the blues held no boundaries. Let me talk about that where you brought that up, because it's a question of mine. So you guys started on the south and west side in those clubs, and the bands became mixed. And then when Butterfield... And uh, who's the guy from Detroit? Mandel, Harvey Mandel came. They're all white bands, began to play the North Side. But you guys convinced the North Side club owners that they should be booking the real deal, like Muddy and Wolf. So you guys were responsible for getting those guys to play at Big John's and the North Side. To the North Side and eventually to San Francisco, all the way to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. 
I would think that we were helpful in that. Like, yeah. And uh, so we got the gig after Butterfield left at Big John's. And it was the Goldberg Miller Blues Band. And we really drew well. And uh, for a year, we played Big John's. And everybody, they were everyone, socialites, pimps, hookers. Yes. All kinds of people, uh, entertainers. Chicago uh, Cubs. Chicago <laughs> and White Sox Chicago fans. Cubs and White Sox <laughs> yeah, fans. Yeah. And, and who else was in the band? Was there anybody else famous in the band? Maurice McKinley, who was a black drummer, mm-hmm. and Roy Ruby, who oh. a dear friend of Michael and my, myself, was the bass player. And it was that was the band, Steve and myself. Roy and Michael used to busk on the corner. Right? Oh, yeah. They used to sit on the corner with a tin can. Right, I mean that was he was famous with Michael for that. Yeah, and then, uh, how many sets a night? Six sets a night. Suits, six. Suits, six. Suits. Oh, <laughs> you know ties and suits or? No, 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 no. This was not the Rush Street. That was a that whole was other way thing. back. All right, yeah. Okay. That was right. Rush Street. Was we had purple suits and green suits <laughs> yeah. and green hair and all. all and until Michael of, came in with a lumberjack shirt. And, and Michael, <laughs> Michael came in with ripped collars and, and buttons unbuttoned, and completely no regard for the dress code. You know, rolled up sleeves, and brought me to the, the old town. You know, with the work shirts. And the Levi's and the boots and everything. And, you Did know. any black people, any black uh, patrons or musicians come to Big John's and play with you? Uh, no, I can't really say. That still was oh, that still was difficult. It was to make still happen. it was still difficult to make. But eventually, it. they began hiring the main guys. Like yeah, what? but to come as a patron. Oh, oh, I see. But it's like Harlem, where you know yes. folks would go up. Yeah, But yeah. like you, you know, it wouldn't, yeah. didn't so work in the, the other direction. Yeah. So it still was, that's you know, insane. it was it was increments, right? Yeah. This um, it doesn't happen overnight, and that's why to, to forget every every good thing that happened to get us to where we are and, and negate the past is a bad idea right now. What We worked pretty hard, all of us, at getting, you know, pushing our relationship forward. Uh, you know, people should try to get together a little more. Yeah, I <laughs> you know? yeah. So you, you had Goldberg Miller, and this was after Mike Bloomfield left Paul Butterfield as well, correct? Right. And what caused that rift? What was, what was the problem between Mike and... Paul. Uh, I I don't think I think it was an ego thing. Maybe you know, Mike was set in his ways, and Butterfield was more of a of a an officer. You know, in in the in the armed services, like he wanted to be the front man too of the band. He wanted right? to be the front man, and Michael was taking too much of of that. You know, and I think Alvin was a little uptight about that. You know, being the second guitarist all the time. And Michael just wanted to do his own thing. And is that where the move comes to San Francisco too? Yeah. So that's where, yeah, that's where that's part of it, right? He, I mean, he he just didn't want to be in that. Uh, that that's you know it was a, a strict order that Paul had, like the old club, like the old van guys. You know, had they would find people if they were ten minutes late. Or if they weren't dressed properly, and Paul was of that school, Michael was a nonconformist to say the least, you know. And with East West, they had pushed the envelope. 
so far, right? I yeah. Mean, and it invented something they call jam bands now, today, but yeah. they might be the first, East West may be the first real. And that was them just trying to adapt to the psychedelic era. Right? Oh, yeah, but it, it inspires the, the Almond Brothers. There's so much of it. If you oh, listen to East West, you hear sections of that that sound like Elizabeth Reed and other things. It was more like Ravi Shankar influence. Yeah, that was, but that was the Monterey. Right. Everybody's in that scene in Monterey where Ravi's playing, and they pan over to Hendrix, and he's his jaw is dropped, and and every every guitar player they Michael, he's like. That that whole thing. That was like it just opened a whole the whole new. It, it wasn't human. And then they find they figured Coltrane was doing that too. Oh, yeah. At the same time. So was that East West not a very successful album? It was too. Oh, much I think it was successful, was okay? right? I, I think it was, but they never had the, you know, they didn't have the success that you know, of a top 40 radio hit. Mm -mm. I don't think any of those bands did. It was always an underground element. Yeah, yeah. So talk about Electric Flag, which was a favorite band of mine. Oh, you had a lot of talented people in there. So it was you, Bloomfield. I was doing session work in New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was after the Goldberg Bloom, the whole mm -hmm. thing. And I did a session with Mitch Ryder called Devil, Devil, with, with, a blue dress Devil with a Blue Dress, yeah. right? and Saka to me and all those songs. Yes. And Michael said, you know, well, I have this concept. And we went to see, we were looking for, well, he said, my concept is to do a band with all American music, like using all the different elements, the rock and roll, uh, the Spectre sound, obviously horns. the Stack sound, the Motown sound, and incorporate with horns and uh, just call it American Music Band. And it was the Electric Flag American Music Band. So we were having trouble getting a drummer, and we interviewed Billy Monday from the Mothers of Invention and other drummers, other people, and Mitch was playing a show uh, at the Paramount Rock and Roll Show, and on the bill was Smokey Robinson, Mitch Ryder, and Wilson Pickett. Yikes. So Michael and I went, we walked in, and the whole theater was moving like it was rocking. And it was this kid on drums that was making the move. It was, kid's name was Buddy Wiles. So Pickett, how, right? Yeah. Pickett. Yeah. So how are we going to get this guy away from Pickett, who, <laughs> who's notorious? You're with guns. <laughs> yeah, with, really. With, it's with, really with, amazing how they did, but go ahead, Barry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the situation. He was you, packing all I'm the time. waiting for it. I can hear it 100 million times. Go ahead. This is what happened. So after this... <laughs> already gone. After, after this set, we stopped at a, a grocery store and bought four boxes of Oreo cookies, right? And we, we took Buddy to our hotel room <laughs> at the Albert Hotel, which was a phenomenal, just a real, you know, flop house sort of a hotel. And we laid him out on the bed, right? And we'd say, Buddy, and after each sentence, we'd drop another cookie in his mouth. Like, he'd say, open your mouth. <laughs> and, 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 and weighed like 400 pounds, right? He was, he was 400 pounds. Yeah. 
and he said, you're going to you're going to run San Francisco. We're going to San Francisco. All the little hippie girls there, and you're going to be the king, man. You're going to you know you're going to run the town. He said, I like it. I like it. Another cookie. <laughs> but did you prime him with a little, maybe a little herb or something? To... No, no, no. Just, no, just, just, just the cookies. Oreo cookies. Oh, That's his currency. That's <laughs> even better than I thought. And, and, and after the third box, he agreed, he agreed to go. And that's how we got him to, to well, you know, join our he band. probably told you how difficult it was working for Pickett. Oh my God! Yeah, right. I mean, we all have heard the stories, yeah. and, and you know, it's like you—it's not really, you know, it was tough because Will Pickett would have demanded that you, you know, play dice with him, and he, so he could win the money back that he just paid you. Wow! You know? <laughs> Loaded dice, probably. He, he was after us for a year. Yeah, yeah, with, right. With, oh, with and he was packing too, okay. man. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we had to be careful not to book us near where he was playing, you know. But Buddy didn't even open his mouth yet. When did you hear that? Oh, we didn't even know he could sing. I know, I know, because you, you had Nick. And rehearsals, <laughs> rehearsals, oh my God, we have someone that that's good, as good as Motown, as good as any singer, you know. So we had two secret weapons on vocals. Is Nick still alive? Yes, very yes. much. He's got a great voice, Jesus. Still. Yeah. Right, Talk Barry. a little bit he about was, he was like a crooner. He's like the Bing He's like Bobby Bland, blues. right? A yeah. lot like Bobby Bland. Yeah. That was his guy. And I think. Like, like a lot like Bing Crosby. Yeah, too. that too. Ah. He's a baritone. Yeah. Well, talk a little bit about the soundtrack for this film. Oh, the for for Bob Sarles's film. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was kind of out of necessity, right, Barry? It was, you know, the way the world has gotten where nobody can let you use anything without charging you yep. an arm and a leg, mm -hmm. thinking every documentary is going to make a million dollars. And in the, in the era, we know that's yeah. not true. Mm -hmm. So Barry and I had the, I think it was a great, great opportunity to make stuff that sounded like source music that we were listening to that we had laid in there you know uh, for, and uh so we went in the studio on one night and cut what like 30 things 30 30 cues 30 one night yeah one like yeah. Give me a little Hubert Sumlin. Like, yeah, you we'd know. say, hey, Barry, how about that organ thing? You know, that, uh, right. you know, or that, that, what about that song that we love? And we, let's do a T bone thing. Let's break down acoustic. Let's do a muddy, muddy thing, you know. Yeah, all the elements and, that, yeah. that they needed. So we were just downloading our, you know, our, our <laughs> record collection into these 30 cubes. <laughs> it was we fun. We've gone too. on and on and on, you know. And that's probably how. It started that we, you know, recorded a, a record together, all of us. Like, you know, it, it just came off so good. The chemistry was so great. There were no psychopaths, you know, like. <laughs> and we were kind of like, hey, it was, did we, gee, everything is only like a minute long. <laughs> we don't have enough. We went back and listened to those tracks and said, you know, we could go and make a, a record easily now, you know. Cause, How many players did you have in the session? Well, it was just Barry, and he had known this this guy from Chicago named Rob Stone, this great harp player, who had all that little Walter and big Walter, and you know he Sunny was a student. Boy. He was a little younger than me, so much younger than Barry. And then uh, we had Rick Reed on bass, who played with Butterfield and a lot of other people. He's a California blues bass legend, and I play with him in Canned Heat now, and with Barry's band and Vince Fawcett Jr., who's an African American kid. That when I first got here about 15 years ago, and I walked into this little club because uh, I had left 
my mic stand the night before Cafe Cordial over there on uh, Ventura Boulevard. And there was an afternoon jazz session going, and this, like, 17-year-old kid was playing drums. And I said, who is, why? And I went up to him and said, why don't I know you, you know? <laughs> Give me your number. And then this opportunity came up for us to record, and he was great, right? His shuffle was right there. He's got a backbeat. Yeah. And any drummer yeah. that has a backbeat. And he's love. a student. So really, it's like, you know, Barry is, is a Yoda to all of us <laughs> younger guys, you know, and he learned directly... He touched the hem of their garments, you know, of their suits, of their, uh, you know, their their sharkskin suits, and we and we get the trickle down effect of a real cat, you know. So then we all become more valid uh, in in our playing from playing with these guys. So that's what we I that's where I came into the movie, and and of course I wasn't there with these guys, but uh, I watched that movie go from the original concept to what it's become, and it's unrecognizable from what the original concept of doing it was, was to have a concert, and but most of the people were gone, really, right? And, and It's been about 12 years yeah, in the making. Yeah, about 12 years in the making. We did a, we did a live show with, oh, remember it in Chicago at the, I can't remember where, the Vic, the Vic maybe? Yeah. Yeah, at the Vic in Chicago, and, and, uh, and but it, but, once Joel Selvin came in to rewrite to help write a script, and Bob changed, and Bob and Bob changed him and Bob got together on it. And was there somebody? I don't want to leave anybody. John out. Anderson. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of other people that came in, and and took this thing and turned it into what you see now, which is really a really nice document. It's really beautiful. And Dan Aykroyd. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and he does it like voiceover. in a period voice. Yes. Like, you know those guys took a hit too for a while. But in their way, when the Blues Brothers movie came out... Oh, heck yeah, he put a lot of players in that movie. You know, you, you, cannot, you cannot put them down. Uh, not only that... I love that movie more now than I did. If Muddy wasn't sick, they called John Lee Hooker because Muddy had a bad cold and couldn't do the outside scene. They called John Lee Hooker. All of that was... Hooker was... He was finished before that movie. He wasn't... You know, I think he might have been in San Francisco by then, you know, and, and Maida had to, you know, he might have moved from Detroit, or maybe not, I don't know. He was a Detroit guy. Um, yeah, but, James Brown, Aretha well, Franklin, all those people. It was and, crazy. And it wasn't that It wasn't that those people in that movie, those real R&B and blues artists needed help. They just needed further exposure. So a whole new audience you know, they're finding, oh, where did Rubber Biscuit come from? Well, let's find that original record. You know, uh, it's, again, a mitzvah. It's something these guys did for the love. Not trying to appropriate, but trying to celebrate. educate. Celebrate, yeah. Fantastic. yeah. Celebrate. And yeah. I celebrate and educate. And yeah. I definitely went out and bought all that music. Well, you're of the age. Yeah. That you're young enough that that was right where you might have come in. For sure. Blues Brothers. Absolutely. So it's called Born in Chicago. It, it's, it's history on a couple of paths. It's a history of... Uh, blues music in America. It's a history of the Great Migration, and even people that aren't involved in blues came from the Delta, came from the South, the Lower Mississippi Valley, and moved northward to get these General Motors jobs and these Ford Motor Company jobs just to make a living and get out of the racism of the South. The bad surprise was when they got here, it was just as bad up north as it was down there. And then it's also a great history of how blues spread to white young America 
And uh, it's, it's, it's a really nice piece of work, you guys. A pleasure to talk with you. Thank Let you, Let me Fritz. ask you one question. Where do you think blues is now? I mean, I listen to, you know, they have a blues channel on Sirius XM. I don't know how many people they have listening. But you have people like Joe Bonamassa, and you have uh, uh, people like Bonnie Raitt, and we talked about uh, Joe Lewis Walker and Shamika. They're keeping the dream alive. But is the industry healthy? Is it still growing an audience? I think so, because all those people, you know, I have worked with and still work with mm-hmm. those people. I produced Shamika's. Well, I actually was a ranger and, and band leader for Shamika's uh, first two Alligator records produced by Bruce, Al- Bruce Iglauer. So I know her forever. Joe, I know since he's 12, Shamika, Joe Lewis Walker and I are great friends and we play. But there's younger kids even than them. Joe Bonamassa is known for being a blues rock blues guy, rock, but can yeah. sit down with an open tune national and play just like Sunhouse if he wants to. Okay, so he has the depth, the knowledge, and uh, and and also the envy of a lot of players who who don't get it that it's, you know, you have to have a thing. Uh, it's there's young people coming. Well, I do blues cruises with them all the time and young bands are coming up. And there and there's still places to work and play the blues all over the country. Not so much LA. And New York. That drives me nuts. I'm always looking for somebody to come out here. Used to be Boston, you know, L.A., New York. It was it was everywhere. But now it's popping up everywhere. And I think that we're the new old guys now, <laughs> you know? I mean, kids are would come around if we're playing. There's always some kids coming around, standing behind Barry going, what's it? Oh, he's using two hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember that? And I Taj mean, Mahal's still doing it with Keb Moe. I oh, love their... Oh, Taj, is whatever Taj does. He did something recently with Ry Cooter that's amazing. Yeah, really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. You know Taj, right? From, yeah. From... from, from what a pleasure, then. guys. Thank you so much. And it's is it streaming yet on Prime? But you said it will be, right? Is it going to be in theaters and then stream, or is it streaming now? You know, I don't. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I somebody said something about Prime to me, which yeah, would be maybe which be. would be great. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I know that Bob has been so dedicated to this. I mean, I'm talking yeah. about blood. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, well, this woman produced a documentary that took how many years? Eight oh, or nine it's years. Hard work. Yeah, I was telling Barry and Gail, uh, that's the poster right there. It, it's completely independently made, with me figuring it out as I went along. The rights, as you mentioned, Jimmy, it's insane what you have to pay for. You know, a Mike Douglas clip. I don't know what you know what you guys played for, paid for like the. What was were they on like Hullabaloo or Shindig? Well, they, you know? they, I guess there's some, something stuff, had to be paid. Yeah, know? that stuff is expensive because people are holding on to it. But like, yeah, that took me eight so years. John, the drummer. Yeah, John Cowsell. I just played with him at we we when May Pang's ah. May Pang's uh, uh, documentary came out. Okay. And uh, John was in the band and uh, that played that night at at the Troubadour, and I did some guest shots in there. And John was great. He's a phenomenal drummer. Great singer, and he plays with Beach Boys, too, right? Yeah, Yeah, he can sing. He just left the Beach Boys, but, like, I think he's going to do some stuff with his wife. There's a lot of souls in L.A. still, you know, working and doing stuff. Oh, yeah. uh, And, and. Wow, that, I got to see that. I want to yeah, see that's that. Yeah, that's on Prime. It's really, really well done. Yeah. I'll brag about it because she won't brag about it. But yeah. It's a, it's a very emotional movie. I mean, it's this classic squeaky clean American presence that, you know, the Calso family with all those hits. But then when you peel back the layers, that some of the turmoil and the heartache is really amazing that nobody knew about. It's pretty cool. 
And that's, I think, that is the gift of documentary film, is that it kind of shows you what's really going on and helps us understand ourselves better. Well, the film showed Bob how to finish it. That's the so cool. The film itself. Yeah. You know, as it, you know, as he worked through it all, I mean, he could never imagine where it would end up from when we started. But Bob understands you know? arc, he understands story, he understands pacing, yeah. and then he dug and he found some some footage I that love you the old will footage, see. The old oh, look, TV at the, look at Buddy. See that, like when you when you see that like clean footage yeah, of Sam, Muddy. Or, oh, yeah, Sam Way. It's like that's insane. You know, it, it's just gonna blow your mind, see you guys. The piano, you're kind of you're you're back. That's just yeah. on the floor. You're kind of sideways. Yeah. I thought like that was the, Pine Top and, Perkins. Though. And these are the guys, and it's pristine nah. footage. It's Where's just Hubert? yeah, and yeah, young yeah, Michael. Yeah. Yep. So well, you know, that's yeah. I know these kind of pictures get me. I just love them. Uh, and then Sam Lay, of course, had those great eight millimeter home movies. And they were under his bed, from what I read. They were under his bed. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, you're going to see all this footage, you guys. Are, it's going to blow your mind. I saw Clapton at the Hollywood Bowl, and Hubert was, he played with him like 10 years ago. It's pretty cool. All right, here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path podcast and our facebook group is media path with fritz and wheezy podcast community you can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our youtube channel at media path podcast and you can write to us at media path podcast at gmail.com and if you enjoy this show please give us a nice rating in apple podcast and talk about us if you would be so kind on social media you can sign up for our spicy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com and we want to thank our guests barry goldberg and jimmy vino our team includes Producer Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and what's your last name, Chris? Chris Baldwin. Chris Baldwin. I, I remember asking you that time, last time, and asking you if you were a Baldwin brother, and you said, no, you're not. <laughs> but you aspire to be one day. Uh, <laughs> so Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox, and I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. So good to see Harvey, isn't it? Is he still around?